This is an ABC podcast. Evening shadows make me blue. Hey everybody, I'm here today to tell you how to be happy. In this video, I'll be going over five simple secrets that will lead to happiness. Now, these five things are absolutely crucial to being happy. So I googled the phrase, how to be happy, the other day, and within 0.65 seconds, I had eight and a half billion results. This helpful advice video was one of them. And what I took from that little experiment was not that eight and a half billion people have cracked the happiness code, but that effectively nobody has. So no big surprise there. But it's worth considering that there could be eight and a half billion ways of defining the concept of happiness. Maybe that's what everyone's talking about, and that's why the whole thing's so tricky. I'm David Rutledge on RN, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone, and a conversation about happiness with two experts in the field. One is Todd May. He's Professor of Philosophy at Clemson University in South Carolina. He's also philosophical advisor to the NBC TV series The Good Place. My other guest is Caroline West, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. And she has a particular interest in the philosophy and psychology of happiness and well-being. I think happiness is a kind of very general term that encompasses a whole lot of different psychological states, much more different than most of us imagine. Um, so ranging from kind of fleeting feelings of pleasure or enjoyment to more enduring mood states and emotions like contentment to kind of not feelings but rather intellectual assessments of how your life is going and whether it measures up to the standards that you set yourself. So when you ask uh, whether I'm happy, I'd like to know what sort of happiness you have in mind? And then um, what follows from that, I think, is a sort of really interesting question because just for a bit of background autobiography about how I came to be interested in happiness, I read these psychological studies about what a disaster it is for happiness to have children. Right at the time, I was deciding whether or not to have children. And, uh, you know, the studies show they represent graphically. You, if you choose to have kids, you're kind of, if there's a steep plummeting line that goes down from happy to unhappy until, you know, pretty much until your kids leave home. And then if you're lucky and you live long enough, you approach the, the levels of, of um, your friends who've decided by choice to remain childless. And so I started thinking, you know, what are these studies measuring? Are they measuring happiness or happiness of a kind that really matters. And uh, I, I have two children now, so I suppose if, if and, and, and I believe the studies, what they're calling happiness is kind of moment-to-moment -moment feelings, tiredness, anxiousness, stress, joy, and so on. And as most of us with kids know, there are many moments of uh, intense joy with kids and also many moments of kind of tiredness and frustration. So, the hedonic effect of having children is much more up and down than uh, I suppose culturally we're led to believe when we're told that children are this bundle of happiness. But other things go up when you have children, like meaning and purpose, sense of meaning and purpose. So you can't really ask meaningfully, are you happy simpliciter? Or will choosing something make you happy full stop? I think you need to ask more fine-grained questions about what kind of happiness are you thinking about and, more importantly, what kinds of happiness on reflection really matter most to you? Todd, what about you? Does that speak to your condition, your, your happiness levels? Yeah, well, I, I've, I'm always a bit squirrely. 
about the concept of happiness for all the reasons that, that Caroline discusses. Uh, uh, and I guess I can throw in a, a little bit of background on myself. I'm a, a Jewish kid from New York City, uh, and uh, we're not supposed to be happy. Hmm. We're supposed to be discontented. <laughs> Angst, right? please. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I tend, I think, as Caroline was saying at the end of her remarks, to, to think in terms of meaningfulness more than happiness. Right. Contentment is something that, to me, is generally fleeting. I, if I feel contentment, I can feel contentment for a little while. But because I think most of us, or maybe all of us, are future-oriented, we're involved in projects that project us out into the future, our friendships, our careers, things like that, that contentment isn't a space that we arrive at and then stay there. We may stay there for a little while, but then we're going to want to move on. So rather than happiness, I like the term flourishing. There's a philosopher, Daniel Hebron, who wrote a book called The Pursuit of Unhappiness, uh, where what he describes has more to do with ongoing flourishing, being involved in things that are meaningful, being attached to those things, uh, ratifying your life as it is an ongo- in an ongoing way, more than anything that might be static in the way that uh, Caroline uh, has criticized. Well, if we turn to Aristotle, he had this idea that happiness lies in exercising our distinctive function as human beings. Okay, so he, he saw that as the exercise of rationality, and we can, you know, whether or not you agree that being rational is what, what humans are for. Do you see your own happiness as depending to some extent on realizing some notion of your own distinctive function, Todd? For example, as, as someone who um, is, is just supposed to be a philosophy advisor for a TV show, something like that. Right. Well, well let me say a, a, a word about Aristotle as well. Right. So the, the term that's translated as happiness is eudaimonia, right? And uh, uh, and eudaimonia means, if you're just transliterating, right, good, right, good demons. And this was taken to be happiness. But I think a number of uh, scholars of ancient Greek thought are now switching to the concept of flourishing or rather than happiness. So I think what Aristotle was actually describing is when he talks about the soul, that eudaimonia is the soul expressing virtue. And So it seems to me that what he's talking about is an ongoing engagement with the world, one that he thought was cosmically rooted, but one that involved something that was temporally extended over the long periods in a person's life, not something uh, that they arrive at. A lot of people think that happiness for us moderns just means a purely subjective psychological state, whereas eudaimonia means good demons, good spirits, but also uh, more broadly a matter of leading a good life where ancients like Aristotle thought there's clearly more to leading a good life than just your subjective states of mind. I mean, you could have the right sorts of subjective states of mind if you're a brain floating in a vat or, you know, hooked up to an experience machine, you know, just simulating, you know, like in the matrix. So you get all the right psychological states there, but you wouldn't be leading a good life by any of the ancient standards because your good feelings wouldn't be connected to uh, your activities and experiences in the right sort of way. So to come to what I think a lot of modern people want. I think our modern concept of happiness is an interesting kind of fusion of of, uh, modern enlightenment ideas of happiness as a sort of psychological state um, and uh, more ancient ideas of happiness as a matter of leading a good life. So we tend to think that happiness is some sort of fusion of these things. It's a psychological state that sort of 
goes hand in hand with somehow leading a good life. Um, so I, I think most of us, we don't want a life of deluded chipperness. <laughs> what we want is for our good feelings. Sure, we, we want the good feelings, or at least most of us don't. Maybe maybe Nietzsche and there are a few Nietzscheans around who don't care so much about good feelings and care more about achievement and striving and so forth. But a lot of us care about good feelings, but we want those feelings to be caused in the right sort of way, not you know, the product just of a pill or, or some kind of delusion. Well, Todd, you published a book this year titled A Decent Life, Morality for the Rest of Us. A decent life. There seemed to be a certain lowering of the bar there, a decent life rather than a morally upstanding life. Why? I mean, have you lowered the bar? And, and if so, why? Well, uh, the short answer is yes, I've lowered the bar uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I think the kinds of lives that our moral theory often encourages us to lead are, are just beyond us. If we're going to be a real Kantian or a true consequentialist in Peter Singer's vision of that, I think most of us are just going to fail miserably. So the question is, is there a way to frame our lives that isn't going to be, say, consequentialism light or, or deontology light? Uh, and the, the book tries to do that. But I think there's another reason as well, which is that in making morality the centerpiece that all other kinds of values are judged by, it seems to me that what we do is we lower the value of those other values, uh, they seem to become worth less. Uh, and the philosopher Susan Wolfe has made a very strong case that we ought to think about, of morality as an important set of values, but not exhaustive of the kinds of values we have, and also not the kind of thing that all of our values should be submitted to, to find out whether ultimately they're justified. But there is one moral imperative that seems to be, well, truly imperative at the moment. And this is why I'm, I'm getting onto this. I mean, one of the main drivers of happiness is, is said to be a sense of connectedness to a community. Okay. But I do wonder about that one when, if we consider that our community is the whole world these days, you go and um, buy a pair of jeans, you should be thinking about the garment factories in Bangladesh. You buy a computer, you're thinking about the workers in China. You drive a car or catch the plane, you, you're thinking about people affected by climate change all over the world. It seems that our sphere of community influence has expanded at a rate that's making huge demands on our moral accountability. And yet we're also being made aware that when it comes to climate change, we really have to rise to those demands, that the decent life maybe isn't going to get us there. Good. There's a couple of things in what you're saying here, David. One is the general unintended effects of the acts that we commit. And interestingly, that's that's a central issue in some of the recent episodes of The Good Place, uh, which say, look, we're, we're going to make mistakes. I, I think if we're looking at that issue, we particularly ought to distinguish or, or cut against this either or, right? Either you are morally okay in what you're purchasing, which I think is going to be nearly impossible, or you're just a moral failure. What we will do will necessarily be involved in moral compromises. Uh, and so we do the best we can in trying to navigate through that. But if we turn specifically to climate change or climate crisis, which is probably more sure. accurate, uh, if we're looking at climate crisis, in my book, I say that there are situations that seem to call out for more. And the climate crisis is one of them. Uh, I think that we do need to push a little bit beyond what we would otherwise do uh, because of the situation we find ourselves in. And, and this, David, it seems to me, it's not something I, I spent a lot of time on in the book, but uh, it's a bit of what we must say moral luck that we find ourselves in a situation where more is morally required of us than would be 
if we were in another situation. And the climate crisis, I think, does require us to push a little bit harder against where we might normally stop. I think one of the roles that morality plays that's a very important role is it counteracts these kind of limited sympathies that many of us have and tells us that we should be more connected to community where that includes, in my view, not just other human beings but kind of all sentient creatures. And to my mind, the thing about morality is that it's aspirational, you know, and it tells us, look, we should do the best that we can to make the world better. And depending on our resources and abilities as individuals and communities, that can be uh, quite demanding. And I think the climate crisis is an excellent example of that. But we, I think we also need to think about how we can make a difference most efficiently and to my mind, a lot of the stuff that we're encouraged to do to combat climate change is, you know, sort of individual stuff like recycling or whatever, that actually in the grand scheme of things doesn't really make much of a difference to the overall harm of global warming. And that actually, if we want to make a difference, what we should be doing is taking to the streets and trying to lobby governments and other mining companies, you know, groups that can make a difference to change their policies and, and do so. And given that the stakes are so high... Is there any extent to which that moral imperative makes you unhappy? I mean, or, or do you have any sense that, you know, no matter, no matter what you do, you're really not able to live up to what you maybe feel is required of you, Caroline? Uh, maybe maybe I'm more comfortable with thinking of myself as a bit of a sinner than than others. But, uh, but I, I, uh, I think that... Um, you know, I don't. I don't think that people should be. I think it's useful to distinguish morally right and wrong action from uh, social practices of praising and blaming people. And it might be that sometimes uh, some of us, uh, for perfectly understandable reasons, fail to live up to the what I believe are high standards that morality sets. Uh, you know, I'm a consequentialist. I think that the morally right action is the one which has the best overall consequences, and that view can be quite demanding. But I also think that you shouldn't always go around blaming people for failing to do the right action because that can be very counterproductive. So there are good consequentialist reasons for, I think, recommending the sort of view that Todd is suggesting, that we should aim for decency on the assumption that aiming for more might demoralise us or lead to some sort of paralysis or whatever. We should do the best we can and we should have whatever practices of praise and blame are most likely to encourage us to do the best we can. This is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone, with me, David Rutledge, and my guests, Todd May and Caroline West. We're talking about happiness, a precious commodity for which demand far outstrips supply, and that means that there's no shortage of people trying to sell it. we all can train and work on. We all face problems and we struggle. But at the same time, I think most of us, we long for that other kind of life that entails meaning and connection and happiness. But it's kind of difficult to live this life, to always be there in this happy place. And today I want to show you uh, why your brain is not always on your side when it comes to creating happiness, but also
Well, these days we have a happiness industry churning out self-help books and TED Talks and workshops and seminars. All this stuff that you can passively consume as though happiness was something you could just grab off a shelf and swipe through the self-checkout and take home. But of course, it doesn't work like that. Global levels of depression and anxiety are on the rise. In fact, the World Health Organization has said that depression is on track to become the second most common cause of disease by next year. So clearly, the happiness industry isn't making us particularly happy, but could it actually be making us unhappy? One of the presuppositions of a lot of this industry, well, there's two combined. One is that you ought to be happy. Uh, and second is that you're some kind of failure if you're not happy. And that seems to me a very deleterious way of thinking. Uh, and here's one of the reasons that I like to think in terms of making our lives meaningful rather than happy, because some of the implications of happy, and these are the things that Caroline talked about, uh, is a sense of contentment, a sense of momentary well-being uh, that I don't think, aside from perhaps in, in fleeting instances, is something that most of us can achieve or would even want to achieve. So once we put on the table these ideas that you ought to be happy and you're a failure if you're not, then I think we're setting people up to, I guess, participate in a set of practices, uh, which I think themselves are, are questionable. Caroline, what about you, the, the happiness industry? Is this something that you, um, you find helpful, completely loathsome? Are you, do you have a few self-help books on the shelf? Where, where are you in all that? Well, I, uh, I do have a few self-help books on the shelf, but for research purposes uh, <laughs> of course, only. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm not quite so down on momentary feelings of pleasure as, as Tob might be. I mean, I, I think that um, I don't think it's helpful for people to feel a failure for failing to be happy or that they somehow ought to be happy. Although I do think it's interesting that it's mystifying to many people how, you know, by objective standards, they could be you know, faring so well. Many of us are, you know, those more fortunate of us anyway, are living in materially unprecedented affluence. Uh, and yet, you know, many people feel unfulfilled, dissatisfied, a uh, sense of yearning, uh, something's missing, this kind of subjective emptiness. And so I think, you know, it's not surprising that people are sort of wondering, well, if things are materially so good, how come subjectively many people feel dissatisfied? And, uh, you know, probably part of the answer to that is that we haven't evolved to be content. As Todd said, We most of us have this kind of... Uh, instinct, you know, evolution has sort of programmed us to be constantly dissatisfied, you know, striving for more. So while, of course, you know, intellectually we can uh, reflect on whether that's a good way to be and I think there are ways of being more content and some of the ancients pointed those out and some of the help help books point them out, you know, stop always comparing yourself with people who are less, for you know, things your grandma told you, a lot of them. But overall, I think the feeling that you're failing if you're not being happy is um, a recipe for unhappiness, not something we should be encouraging. Well, there's been some interesting um, research coming out of uh, happiness psychology over the last few years. And I like this idea of happiness set points, right? It's, it's this idea that everyone has a congenitally determined happiness level, which doesn't tend to rise or fall too much as your circumstances change. So we all know the story of the person who wins the lottery and they're outrageously happy for 18 months or so, and then they just kind of settle back to their their innate happiness level. And 
it raises the question, I guess, of whether happiness is just a function of the kind of person you are and something that makes you naturally inclined to do all the things that we assume give us happiness. It's like happiness is a cause rather than an effect of the good life. What do you make of that argument, Caroline? Um, Well, I think there's lots of evidence for the set point theory, but it shouldn't be overstated. So, what the evidence suggests is that if you take a population of people, you can ex- about 40 to 60% of the variation that you see in their happiness levels can be explained by genetic factors and the rest by environmental factors. So it's still, you know, the set point only accounts for half of our overall happiness um, levels. And some types of happiness, interestingly, are more genetically based than others. So negative affect, sadly, (laughs) is more genetically determined than positive affect and life satisfaction is much less heritable than either. So I, I wouldn't overstate the extent to which happiness is just genetically determined and there's nothing much that you can do about it. There's still a big environmental influence. And one of the findings actually that I find interesting is that moral do-gooding actually has a um, very positive impact on people's happiness um, levels. By volunteering, you can raise your happiness to amount that's equivalent to a sort of $35,000 or $40,000 increase in your salary. I love that they've put a figure on it. That's fantastic. Um, what about philosophy? What about philosophy as a road to happiness? Todd, if you look over the history of philosophy, if you look at the, the spines all along your bookshelf at home, which philosopher or maybe philosophers offer the best formula, if you like, for flourishing or meaning? Well, I, t- I took up, I think, from Aristotle. I found him very helpful in part because Aristotle thinks about life as a trajectory, in contrast to a number of modern, say, moral philosophers who are focused on, is this act good or is this act bad? Aristotle was focused on themes that could characterize a life. And I think what he sees is that our lives aren't lived moment to moment. Uh, They're lived over periods of time and then they can be characterized by themes. Now, some of the themes that he uses to characterize life, I'm not as comfortable with And some of them are more morally oriented. But if we broaden that out, and I've tried to do that by talking about narrative values, we can see values of a life lived over a course of time that can lend them a sense of meaning or a sense of flourishing. So spontaneity, uh, intensity, spirituality, curiosity, these I think can be themes that will characterize life picking up from Aristotle's insight that we live over the course of the thickness of time that allows us to be more flourishing. So Aristotle has been, I think, important for me. And as I mentioned before, Susan Wolfe's recent work on meaning has been really helpful for me. I actually think that so many philosophers have had very important and interesting insights, you know, about the nature of happiness and also about the the sources of happiness. I mean, if I can pick up on something that Todd was talking about, just the kind of temporally extended way of thinking about happiness, where it's not just a kind of momentary thing, but you locate your present experiences and your present pains and pleasures in the context of a much bigger, more global thing, you know, your life lived over time. I think that is an important dimension to thinking about happiness, even if you're just interested in the more momentary states, even if that's what you care about. Because 
there's a lot of research on positive emotions and negative emotions, but not very much discussion of what makes an emotion positive or what makes it negative. It's just sort of assumed that joy is a positive emotion and so conducive to happiness and, and grief or anxiety or, you know, is a, is a negative emotion and so detracts from happiness. And I think one thing we can learn from ancient thought about happiness is that um, that's really not the right way to think about positive and, and negative emotions. You know, the so-called negative emotions, which get such a bad press in the happiness industry, can actually be very positive things um, in the context, you know, where they occur in the context of a temporally extended life where they're constructive. And so I think things like grief and so on need not detract from happiness where they're kind of an appropriate response to the way things are going in your life or, or where they're preconditions for kind of necessary change. I'm going to finish with a question a little out of left field. A study that came out of Rutgers University a few years back which um, suggested that conservative voters are happier than progressives and that racially homogenous societies are happier than multicultural ones. And of course, some listeners are going to hear this and say, well, yes, that just confirms everything I've always thought. Other listeners, perhaps of a more politically left-leaning persuasion, will find that quite confronting. Todd, what does it suggest to you? Well, the, I think one of the things they suggest is that it's really difficult to get a grip on what we mean by happiness. Uh, it, it's certainly easier for many people to navigate a, say, culturally homogeneous society than it is to navigate among differences. But those differences can also bring meaningful aspects to our own lives by doing things like, for instance, showing us the contingency of some of the things which we think are important in the face of people who find things that are, that find other things that are important. Uh, and and in, in terms of conservatism, I can offer you a counterexample because I'm coming from the United States. And if you look at the people who vote for Trump uh, and who support his policies, uh, what you find more often than not is uh, some sort of rage or isolation, or feeling as though you don't have a part of things. Uh, so I, I'm hesitant both in terms of the term and in terms of what implications we're supposed to draw from that. I don't find that at all surprising, actually, because those studies are looking at life satisfaction. And when you think about uh, what is a conservative, a conservative is someone who's pretty much happy with the way things are, and what's a progressive? A progressive is someone who's pretty dissatisfied with the way things are and want change. So when I saw that study, I thought, it was, you know, uh, also those studies, they just give you correlations. You know, it's not like, you know, whether being progressive is making you miserable or whether miserable people are attracted to uh, or dissatisfied people are attracted to progressive politics. So, first of all, I don't think those studies, uh, those ones in particular, are, are surprising. But there are an awful lot of unfortunate, to my mind, connections between happiness and other things. So, you mentioned, too, being a conservative voter and um, living in a racially homogeneous society, but also narcissists turn out to be much, much happier than, you know, others. Uh, actively religious people turn out to be much massively happier than others. And, uh, but, I, you know, what should we do with that? Is that an argument for, uh, you know, becoming a race of racially homogenous, conservative voting, religious narcissists? I, I, I don't think so. Um, so I think these kind of correlations um, raise important questions about how important 
happiness is in the grander scheme of things. I mean, happiness is one of the things that many of us care about, but uh, it's certainly not the only thing that most of us care about. And maybe it isn't more important than truth or justice or other things that we care about as well. Well, I think on that note in praise of a, a modicum of dissatisfaction, we can maybe leave it there. Uh, Caroline West, Todd May, great to talk to you both. Thanks for coming on the program. Uh, it's been Lovely a pleasure to, to be talk. here. Thank you. And on RN, this has been The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guests, Todd May, Professor of Philosophy at Clemson University in South Carolina, and Caroline West, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. More info on the website, streaming and download links available any old time via the ABC Listen app, and you can tweet me at David P Zone. Thanks for your company, and like the man says, don't worry, be happy. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>